So, hello and welcome to this week's instalment of Nucleus Investment Insights. And today we thought we'd uh, have a look at, I guess, a perennial topic and certainly one uh, given that there's been some recent uh, new information that's come out from the ATO, as always, uh, with their annual and quarterly reports on uh, the, the big wide world of self-managed super funds. And uh, so what we're going to be focusing on today is the investment side of self-managed uh, super funds in particular. And we've entitled this one the Self-Managed Super Fund Investment Masterclass. Uh, I'm joined, as always, by our Head of Investments at Nucleus Wealth, Damien Classen. G'day, Damien. Hi, Tim. And uh, with no further ado, let's jump into it. So the agenda for today is uh, we're going to start off just by looking at some highlights from the Australian SMSF landscape. Uh, we'll then roll into two uh, major mistakes that SMSF trustees, uh, we often think anyway, make in their asset allocation. We'll then, uh, of course, cover off on some key ways to avoid making these mistakes uh, and then uh, finish off by running through some key considerations before taking the plunge into a self-managed super fund. So hang on to your seats. Um, so we'll kick it off. So obviously the, uh, the Australian uh, SMSF landscape is uh, a, a big part of the overall super system. Uh, we're looking at uh, about 23-odd cents in, in every dollar of the 28 trillion dollar super system uh, resides in a in a self-managed super fund so it is um, certainly an area of interest for uh, a lot of uh, investment firms to, to get it right but also uh, for a lot of people that are running these funds to uh, to make sure that it's done properly uh, just to, to cap off I guess or to start off on some on some numbers there so uh, as an update to our, our last one which was about I think it was about 18 months ago uh, we, uh, we there has been an increase so there's now uh, nearly 590,000 uh, SMSFs in total uh, number of members in there is uh, one bit over 1.1 million Australians uh, use that which is uh, what one in one in 20 almost I'd say um, the overall uh, estimated value of, of assets in the self-managed super side of the super system is uh, nearing $750 billion, uh, a big figure, I think, in anyone's uh, anyone's parlance. And uh, interestingly, uh, I've just got the top five asset types held by SMSFs uh, by value. So uh, cash and term deposits have, uh, have taken the lead over listed shares, uh, which is interesting since we've last uh, run through this 18-odd uh, months ago up. Uh, from 23 now to, to 37% uh, of the of SMSFs. Our listed shares are sitting at 26, which is actually down a touch, and we'll cover off in that uh, in more detail certainly later on. Uh, real property and trusts uh, have uh, sat largely flat, and other managed investments are around about 5%, and that won't fully add up, but these are just the, uh, the top five asset types. And what I'll do now is just run through, I guess, uh, some of the key uh, key areas, I guess, or key key components of, uh, of what, what to think about with SMSF. So, uh, starting at uh, the total number there. So, interestingly, uh, and this is obviously dragged from the ATO SMSF statistical uh, reports. Um, noticing a little bit of a flattening off in the total number of SMSFs, as you can see, they're you know rising mark markedly from uh, well over uh, or for four, mid four hundred thousands now to the you know near, nearing six hundred. Although it seems to be sort of petering out in um, in in its growth rate, uh, and there's actually a, a, an explanation behind that is there's been, been quite a marked uh, rise in wind ups. Uh, in the last uh, 18 months since we sort of started looking at it, uh, combined with, of course, a, a falling number of establishments, which is interesting, Damien. Yeah, so I think, well, I guess one of our um, comments for, for for listeners in terms of if you have one or if you're, or if you're uh, 
if you have one or you're thinking of having one, is just realizing there is an extra layer of, of work that goes into these SMSFs. You get a lot more transparency. Um, you there are some benefits uh, in terms of franking credits that flow through, um, but which has sort of been the key driver, I think, for most people in terms of setting them up. But on the flip side, um, there's also I think it's probably safe to say a number of people who have quite grand ideas about what they're going to do, mm. and then realize that just a minute this is actually a full-time job and I've also already got a full-time job or, or I've already got grandkids and, and other things to do with my life. And so, you know, th- there is that question about so about working out how much control you want yep. versus uh, yeah, versus the, the amount of cost. And, and in the last year, a lot more people have been deciding. And I think the ATO as well has been chasing uh, pretty hard in terms of the number of uh, – or ASIC, I guess, probably more chasing – yeah, uh, small. Uh, yeah, ATO, I guess finally. Yeah, but it's yeah. right. Yeah, because it's the the issue for you know if you've only got a hundred thousand dollars in in one of these is that your running costs are probably two ish percent mm. before you've even started investing your money. Yep. Yeah. I think a big thing too, um, like anything, is that you know there's a, there's a mindset out there, and certainly you know people that I've come across in, in my uh, career in, in advice, working actually predominantly in uh, in SMSFs as well, um, where the pe- people like to think they can do it themselves. You know, at the end of the day, um, you know, we're, I think it's it's almost part of the cultural parlance that you know we, we you know we we pick ourselves up by our bootstraps, and so why can't we do it with our retirement savings? Mm-hmm. Um, but a bigger part of that is then maybe in a couple of years' time, and I think that. The the statistics are showing this now where people are okay having a bit of navel gaze realizing that um (laughs) this may be affecting their uh their retirement (laughs) lifestyle (laughs) absolutely and um and 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 having another look at it so yeah quite interesting um sorry and and part of that is that this whole diversification part about i guess working out and i think as as we find that the, the longer people have owned smsfs the more you find they're starting to say, well, okay, well, I'll, I'll actually use somebody else to do this part of it for me. And then I use, I, I do all the stuff I like to do. So maybe, maybe, um, you know, retired doctor and, and likes biotechnology investing is saying, well, that's really great. And it's great keeping on top of all these interests. It's quite interesting researching and seeing and, and picking out things that, that you like. But having a whole portfolio full of biotechs all of a sudden turns your portfolio into a, a massively volatile, you know, instrument that can go up and down. Whereas if you sort of say, okay, well, let me, let me actually find somebody to manage a, a core investments and does the, the cash and the bonds and the, the boring stuff. And then you can round the, the edges. They can still play around with, with some of those. Uh, yeah, That's right. Yeah, and I think that's a very sensible strategy. Uh, interestingly, um, so uh, the, the, the technical term is uh, that the number of, the total number of uh, members for a, a super fund needs to be less than five. Uh, and uh, there was uh, some proposed legislation last year for it to be increased to less than seven. So an additional two more to, to I guess, bring into account the fact that these uh, are more commonly viewed now as, as more of a family-style superannuation um, account as opposed to just a mum and dad. Mm-hmm. Although, um, as the statistics show here, 70% um, of, of, of super funds have uh, two members as opposed to um, any other, Although, and with uh, a single member being uh, the next largest. So mm-hmm. the three and four size super funds, um, member super funds, are still largely unused. And I guess there's probably a little bit of evidence to show that maybe if it went out to six, that <laughs> it'd be probably less again. Yeah. And I think... And I think- Coming back to that, probably is part of the the franking credit changes that were proposed by the Labor government, and I see them back in the paper again today as, as talking about you know, maybe they should be, maybe maybe they shouldn't give up completely on the franking credits, mm. uh, and and so I think there's a there's an element of, of going at, at that stage if if they do ever get in and, and put those in, you you do and and 
and you've got you want a mix of retirees and non-retirees to get the best tax benefits from it. Yeah, well, that's because right. Because you, you want to be able to offset some of the tax gains and losses within within various parts. And so, uh, yeah, so something to keep in mind um, just for the future is that yeah, if it's if there are going to be tax changes, then you probably do want more members just to to spread those tax issues. Around. Well, that's right. Yeah, and there was a strategy rolling around. Um, I guess in uh, in preparation for potential CG uh, for franking credit changes, where by bringing in young, younger members, you could quarantine the uh, you know potential losses from people in retirement. Mm-hmm. Um, with uh, labour not getting in, those changes not getting in, I guess mm-hmm. the ability to have six is probably uh, you know less important less- now. Yeah, <laughs> and interestingly, it was uh, it was knocked on the head in in early April. The the six uh, member SMSF bill, interestingly combined with a a, um, an excise change in uh, craft beer. So you said two, two of my favourite uh, topics uh, uh, combined together and then it didn't get through, but feel free to research that one in your own time. Um, so the, interestingly, the demographics of, of age ranges, and I've got a couple of slides on this one, but the demographics, um, I think it's to be expected. So you've sort of got this this hump in the uh, in the 45 to 75 range, um, sort of making up the lion's share of, of ownership in, in SMSFs. Uh, what has been interesting, though, is the new establishment. So this has just sort of come out from this most recent report, where there's been a, um, a marked rise in the in the 35 to, to 54 range, taking up now the lion's share of, of people getting in. So I guess it shows that there has that there is a lot of interest in you know in the in the 35, so the 30 year to retirement sort of zone mm. onwards um, in in the new establishments in the in the last quarter. Um, not sure as a as an owner of a, a trustee of an SMSF, Damien. When when did you kick your one off? Would you fit in? Does this one make sense? Yeah, I, I guess for for me, I kicked it off at a, at a at a younger age. But you know, I've been in investments all my life, and so that's probably probably not the the standard case. I would hazard a guess that, and and it is just a guess that, that there's a chunk of that that is the um, uh, that's borrowing to buy property within mm. a self-managed super fund and that that's, that's been a big push that, that we've seen through um, uh, through various financial planners and, and we, we ran a podcast on it you know, six, six months ago or so just, just showing that some of the assumptions that are being suggested to people who buy this is basically um, here, buy an asset, gear it up uh, as far as you can mm. and the asset usually will return 10% per annum and look, you'll be a, you know, you'll be a multi-millionaire <laughs> in 20 years time and it's saying, well, yes, that's, that's perfectly right. As long as your assumption that 10% per annum is a, yep. is a sensible assumption. And, uh, but so, so I guess that's why my concern is that there's a lot of people <laughs> who have been rolled into a self-managed super fund. Yep. Um, and, and the ones we've seen is all about, um, can I afford to do these interest payments or, or can I afford to, to pay off my, Investment property they're about to buy, mm. and less about whether they should. Mm. And so, um, yeah. particularly and, if they're holding a lot of property outside of super as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. So, yeah, it's it, it's a it's a great point. I've got a chart coming up actually that'll help uh, back that that point up exactly. Um, interestingly, here so I've just got um, the proportion of total assets in segments, so um, broken out into the various uh, total uh, amounts per uh, SMSF. So as you can see there, that once again the lion's share sort of sitting in that middle band of um, larger than two hundred, um, and then you know capping out sort of or finishing up uh, that that. That pig in the in the pipeline, so to speak, of, of two million, um, to be expected, I think. Um, and uh, so, what I'm actually going to do is just use a couple of those. So, I'm just uh, for for the, the later charts, I'm I'm going to use a, a two hundred to five hundred thousand band. Um, and give you a little bit of uh, insight into some some asset allocation at that level. And then we're also going to look at the two to five million. And the reason for that is because 
in my experience, the two to five is typically where you'll find the true self-managed super fund member who may wish to just, you know, do it themselves and, and pick themselves up. Whereas in the two to five range, um, you'll often find there's, um, so there's a, you know, there's a degree of outsourcing done either be investments. Sorry, or, just to clarify, that was the, the 200 to 500,000 range 200 is, to 500, is, is where yeah, you sorry. see the self-managed person yeah. who's doing it themselves. Yep. And the two million plus, two to five million is where you've got professionals involved in it and they've set the structure up for this person to that's right yeah just to make that just to make that clear so um we'll roll into it so i guess the first mistake and we mentioned that we're going to run through a couple of uh, mistakes that we often see uh is uh doing nothing <laughs> and um the the amount of self-managed super funds i've seen that uh started um either of, of a client's own volition or through a recommendation of a friend or mm. through an accountant perhaps um and they Typically, we'll roll the money out of a master trust somewhere, whether an industry fund or a retail super fund or something like that, um, and then it goes into a into a, a cash account in the self managed super fund, and then the following year they sit down with the accountant and it's still sitting in cash. That's very very common. Um, so a big point there actually was quite interesting is um, that you know you can see that in in, in just those two examples of the um, the, the true self managed I guess sort of range versus the um, the advised range, um, although it is decreasing, which is which is good. To see uh, year on year. Um, the other, I guess, well, and then rolling on from that is if, you, if you're doing nothing, if you're not doing nothing rather, then the second mistake is you'll quite often then just follow the beaten path of doing what you know. So for Australians, parochially, we, we know cash, we know term deposits if we're investing outside, and we know property. And then, <laughs> so these are the two levers that are often pulled. Mm. Um, once again, you can see that there was a, you know, a, a little bit of a rise, I guess, in that, in that self-managed. Um, seems to be dropping off a little bit uh, in 2017. Um, and I guess on the other side of the coin, you've now got um, a lift in the, in the larger band in the 2 to 5 million range um, where it is actually they're starting to climb into, into real property as well. Mm. Outside, look, I've, you know, I've been out of the game uh, you know, for, for a little while, I guess, in the, in the true everyday self, uh, self-managed space. But, uh, yeah, I, I haven't heard too many reports as to why the the advice side would get into real property perhaps it's a um i was i was thinking perhaps commercial property might be where it, where it goes yes. but residential hmm. <laughs> yeah and then the, the question as, as in that second mistake sticking with what you know i mean the, the question always comes back to residential property for me is um you know if you've if you've already got your um you already own your own house uh you know, a large proportion of the, the Australian population work in some sort of industry that is related to, to Australian Absolutely. Uh, housing. Yep. So sort of 20%, whether if you're in a bank or, or um, you know, even something like bank or real estate or or, or other sort of things that are, that are just based around that whole housing market. Uh, often people will also own an investment property of their own and then they feel the need to, to also put their um, their superannuation money into, into property is saying, well, you're basically taking a, a one-way bet with mm. everything and just sort of everything on uh, everything on black thank you and if anything else comes up it's uh off yeah. you go yeah, yeah it, it could also be um i think you know we've had a terrific run obviously in property prices where people may have bought an investment property negative gearing all the rest of it years ago mm. had a win felt like they know what they're doing yeah and then the opportunity comes to um to sit you know someone throws something across their desk uh, yeah. and that sort of leads us a little bit into this uh Next chart, which was just a um, quick snapshot of uh, what they call limited recourse borrowing, which is effectively how you can you know borrow to, to buy property within uh, self-managed super funds, uh, marked rise in uh, you know sort of tenfold rise in five years, essentially is um, you know growth in the um, in the uh, in the amount of borrowing that's going on. Mm. Um, so yeah, look, 
Cause for concern, potentially. I know it's, um, it was certainly a, a bit of a hot button topic, uh, throughout the Royal Commission. Uh, and, uh, yeah, it remains to be seen what, what's done through, uh, legislation to try and perhaps, uh, slow that down, uh, and, uh, you know, potentially stop, <laughs> stop, yeah. stop a bubble but, being blown. But I mean, the main, the main thing to take away is that, um, from, from that graph is that five times as many people who are doing it themselves, uh, end up taking a borrowing yep. out in their super fund versus people who have been, under advice, uh, under advice, yeah, and and the message there is that um, you know the, for the for the for the bigger amounts and, and people who are managing you know large portfolios, they're just not touching the uh, not touching the gearing, the gearing stuff. Yep, yeah, it's just there. There's there's you don't have the same upside and downside. Yep, and and there's so many other options when you once you're uh, you're in that investment and, landscape, and it's so expensive within super funds as well. That's it's it's usually point. a lot more expensive to do the borrowing within your super fund than what it is outside of your super fund. Yep, good call. Um, so sticking with that, what you know, I guess is um, essentially, uh, and this is once again just a bit of a reflection on the um, on the lower versus the higher examples we've got, but um, you know. Uh, a, a more uh, a more weighting or higher weighting here clearly for uh, for listed shares in that larger band. Wouldn't say it's a whole lot more. Um, it is actually quite interesting, um, and I'll roll into the, inter- the overseas assets. But the 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 report uh, doesn't do a, a terrific job in clearly defining what's Australian and overseas assets. It's actually quite difficult to work that out because they use trusts and other other areas. But um, I, I, this is the, the the best I can put together from from the report on on overseas assets. Um, I, I, clearly, I don't think the percentages are right. <laughs> Are quite uh, representative of, uh, of, of super funds, but it does once again illustrate that the advice side of the, um, you know, or potentially under advice side of an SMSF favours an overseas investment over uh, a smaller, smaller yeah, fund. Yeah, absolutely. If you go to an asset consultant, and, and I, I think, I don't know if you could find any asset consultants who would turn around and say, no, 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 you need to have all your money in Australia. <laughs> and you know, and particularly in Australian property, you know, yep. that's that's your best environment, best best invest, best retirement strategy. Yep, they, they will generally say you need a broad spread, and you know, that you need these international stocks as well as Australian stocks. And so, yeah, when people are running their own money, it's very easy to go. Well, I read about BHP every day, and I open up the the Fin Review, and I, yep. I can you know read about these stocks, and so they're the ones I want to invest in. Versus actually saying no, it's a it's a much broader world. Australia is sort of two percent of the global. Uh, index and there's so many products that um, you use every day that uh, aren't listed on the Australian stock market. Mm. And, and if you want to get exposure to to those to, to most of your life, then the other 98 percent of things that you buy, yep. then uh, you need to head offshore to do it. Yep, great point. Uh, I'll, I'll just finish up just the, uh, the the little chart pack I've run through there with um, what I what I actually like, I really like this one. This is from uh, Graham Hand just recently in Cufflinks. Uh, which is uh, you know an online one. Feel free to check that one out. But um, I'll bit of hat tip him seeing as I'm using his, uh, his his chart here. But interestingly, so what he's done is he's he's, he's broad, broadly uh, broken up the the asset classes, um, and this is once again using the the same report, uh, but highlighting the fact that there has actually been um, a conservative trend. So there has been uh, a wind back in the last um, let's call it five years. Um, Towards, uh, you know, towards cash and, and away from, uh, direct shares. Um, any, anything you think might be a, a background for this one, do you think, Damien, just off the cuff? Links? Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm just thinking through that. Uh, look, I mean, it's interesting that that's, that's actually been a cracking, uh, we've had a cracking five years on, on most of the stock markets. Exactly. Uh, it is a question of saying, um, you know, sometimes there's, 
so, so I guess, I guess in a way, it's a sign that people weren't fully allocated. They had way too much cash five years ago. Mm. And I think there's, there's coming back to your point before about the people when people feel good about things is when they they invest more. Is um, a classic uh, mistake you see a lot of retail investors make is they go they look at an investment and they say, um, okay, I'm going I'm to dabble a little bit in shares. And they go, okay, I've got you know I've got a million dollars to invest, and I'll I'll put fifty thousand into shares. And then they have it. There's a cracking year, and it goes, it's up twenty percent. Mm. And they're like, "Oh, how good was that? You know, I made ten thousand dollars. I should have put more in there." Yep. And the next year they go, "Okay, well now, now I'm going to put a hundred thousand dollars in there." Right. And next next year they get another twenty percent return, and they're like, "Oh, well, you know, imagine if I had invested more." And the next year they go, "Whack! Here's nine hundred thousand into shares, or <laughs> or my full million into shares." And that's the year you have the downturn. Yeah. Right. And and, and then it's like, okay, I'm not going near shares again. That's right. Yep. And you spend five years worth of. And that, and that's I think you could probably track from the um, the the rise in cash there from the the financial crisis in two thousand and nine. You just mm-hmm. see people go, uh, you know, got to get more conserv. You know, I'm not never going near shares again. Never going near shares again. Never going near shares again. Oh wow, shares are up a hundred percent over five years. Oh wow, now I've just got to start piling, piling in, in and yep. doing it doing it too late. Yeah, yep. and so that's always the concern is that um, yeah, it's follow, following you're getting reinforced by what's happened in prior years without that expectation of saying, well, you're not going to make 20% every year in shares. Yep. Um, and, and you are going to have, if you've had a, strung together a few great years, you know, the, the odds are at some stage there's a, there's a, there's a bad year coming. And, uh, and more importantly, when there's a bad, you have a, couple, a year, a bad year or a couple of bad years is not, is definitely not the time to say, well, I'm never investing again. You know, I'm, I'm going to sell in cash for the next, yep. Yeah, yep. The next 20 years. No, great point, and uh, leads us beautifully into uh, the the next side of it, which is, I guess, more of the uh, psychological sort of uh, piece that that goes in behind the uh, the investing scene. So. Yeah, so um, I mean, this is a part for investing. Investing what you know. So there's a couple of famous books out there by Peter Lynch. Um, you know, one is one up on Wall Street, and and the other one's Beating the Street. And his message all comes back to, um, you know, you walk into a shop and you see everyone buying some sort of product and, and, or your wife loves this and, and all the friends are buying it, then go out and buy the stock and, and, you know, you'll, you'll, you'll benefit from that. Sort of what insights can you actually get from being on the ground? And, or, or if you're working in the medical industry, you'll have d- bigger insights or somebody in the engineering engine, you know, what, what do you see in yep. your day job that helps you? Um, now that's, um, that's not, there's, there's a, certainly a, a case for that, um, but that's it's important to note that a stock picking advice. We're not mm. talking about asset allocation advice, yep. because um, you know these are the, these are finding stocks that you want to, that you really like and you're going to take a big bet on. It's not about finding an asset allocation strategy, which is all about diversification. It's actually about the opposite, about saying you need to make bets on things you don't know about. Yep. Because by almost by definition, you don't know everything, yep. hopefully. And if you did, then you probably <laughs> well, not listening, listening to our podcast. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so, um, you know, asset allocation is really about saying, well, I might know a lot about Australian shares or, the, or a certain pocket of Australian shares, but I need to buy some international shares to get some diversification for, for things that I don't understand or things that I just don't have time to, to, to research. So essentially for those um, listening at home that haven't got their head in the investment space, the, the stock picking side of it is more of a micro piece inside of a um, an asset themselves. So, for example, Aussie shares a stock in that in that allocation. Hmm. Whereas the asset allocation in, in uh, holistically is macro. It's saying, okay, what's the economy looking like? In you know, how's it going to impact this um, this asset? Be Aussie shares, overseas shares, bonds, cash, etc. Yeah, yep. and so that and I guess so. I guess what I'm saying is, if you're running your super fund and, and talking about our investor before who dabble started dabbling in shares and then all of a sudden went all in and just at the wrong time, yep, is about saying, okay, well, I've got a, I've got 
a million dollars to invest, um, I'm going to then choose and say, okay, well, I'm going to put 500,000 of that into uh, a mixture of bonds and cash and some safe shares or whatever it is to, mm-hmm. that's going to, to so I know I've got this stable base and that's going to be a, a decent performer in the middle. Uh, and then around that, that, now I can go, okay, well, I'm, you know, I'm an ex-doctor and I wanted to find, buy some biotech stocks or, uh, you know, I've heard some great things about electric cars or I love my Tesla or, what, you know, whatever it is that you want to stick around that or I've got this great hedge fund tip that somebody gave me. Sure. And then you can go, okay, I'll put 50000 or or 100000 in in some of these other assets with the idea that it's all about that diversification and saying, you know, am I, am I taking the bets? And then so if you are picking stocks, then it's about saying, well, how much Australian equities do you want, for example, in your mm. portfolio and taking a big picture view of it and saying, okay, well, I want $200,000 in Australian equities, for example. Okay, now how am I going to divide that as opposed to starting from the bottom up and saying, well, I'll have one of these and one of those and <laughs> like one of those. Like and a kid in a lolly shop. <laughs> exactly. And when I get to the end, I'm like, well, just you know, I've got too many lollies here. Now I've got $500,000 worth of shares that I've just bought. Yep. Oh, oh, well, I'll just stick with that. Yep. It's actually saying, no, 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 you need to start from the top down. How much am I allocating to each different sector? Now go out and find the ones you want. Mm-hmm. And it's always hard. The hardest thing with any of this is an asset allocation is um, when you when it comes to saying I've made a decision to go underweight a particular underweight shares for example so I need to go through my portfolio and sell some shares it's always difficult because there'll be ones in there you'll just be like oh that one's going to come good I know that one's going you know whatever it is <laughs> and so it'll and you know it's gone down but I know that's going to come back and and so there's always those it's always a hard emotional decision um, and to to go through and go well no I've, I've just decided I'm going to halve it I just need to halve everything and get Get yep. out of that. Yeah, so, okay. so what often people do, especially if they're managing their own, their own portfolios, they might even hold an, an exchange-traded fund yep. within their portfolio so that they can just then make a make a quick decision to say, okay, well, let me just halve the exchange-traded fund because I don't feel no emotion. no emotion about that one. Yep. But, but this stock I bought because I really love it and I'm nurturing it and I'm, you know, I feel <laughs> as if it's I'm, I'm on with a team. Yeah, yeah sure. So, okay. So, yeah, great point. But, but yeah, a lot of that's about fighting these biases. And that's um, – I've got a – just the top 10 biases up up on the screen but uh you know the if you are managing your own self uh super fund you know having a a good look through some of the most common biases and trying to work out where where you make them um you know that i've got so confirmation bias loss aversion optimism self-serving and planning fallacies i think there's the main thing is that with with a lot of these is that um it's about things that everyone makes um mm. so everyone thinks they're a good driver and everyone thinks they're above average at sex and so um <laughs> and and by definition not everyone can be above average on at, at both yeah, so yeah you, need, you need to have a an even split um it's pretty similar in investing that you know most people um and, and some of the stats have shown is that when when people say that they're 99 percent sure about something mm. um they tend to be right about 80 percent of the time right okay and so um, it's about recognizing that. <laughs> it's about recognizing that you will people are overly optimistic on all these things, and yep. it's about recognizing these, um, you know, that confirmation biases where you, you're trying to find things that agree with you, or you get that confirmation bias. Like I said, like I was talking about the guy who was just dabbling in shares, and then oh, that worked really well, and I've got to invest a bit more, and yep. and so um, yeah, it's the just because you've had a few great years, um, don't. Don't sort of figure that, all oh, right, I've, I've got this whole thing licked. All I need to do is just, you know, put, throw more at it or maybe I just need some gearing to, to sort the whole thing out Then I'll mm. yeah, retire a millionaire. Yep. Okay. So, sure. Um, a few more. Uh, of a few the, more up there. Yeah. Yep. And, it's, and it's worth noting as well that, you know, there's um, there's always, everyone's got, always got some very interesting stories about stocks they bought that are, you know, gone up fivefold and tenfold and all that and nobody ever wants to tell you about the, 
the, the ones that, that they had that sort of closed out the, the bottom of the portfolio. Yeah, but so the gambling sort of side of things, isn't it? You hear about the wins and you, you don't hear about the losses. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And so there's a, and it's, and that's one of these biases you need to keep coming back to is when you're hearing the, the great stories about how well people have done is, yeah, you're not hearing both sides. And when you, you average out, you know what the markets are doing. Mm. And so you can sort of see where, you, where you're sitting. And it's well worth people sort of seeing where they do sit in their own portfolios versus markets and the, and the volatility in it to make sure that yeah, you are doing, you are actually adding value to your, to, to, the, to the whole process. Yep. Okay. Sure thing. Um, and obviously for, for more info on biases, there's plenty of info out there on the web, uh, to do with the biases and yeah, yeah pick, pick, go and have a crack at your, your own personal ones. You're, exactly. <laughs> yes. It, it's probably the, as an investor, it's probably the most important thing you can do mm. is try and work out what are, what are my own biases because, um, yeah, that's, it's a, it's, it's where you're most likely to stuff up from from your own biases, not from and do it again and, and it again. again. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Sure thing. So bad timing. Bad timing. Yes. So on. So there's all these arguments out there about um, you know, do professional investors add value or, or not? And and uh, there's you can read a lot of papers out there that that will talk about saying um the there's one that, uh, from S and P the S P I V A survey that comes out every few months. And, and talks about how, oh, you know, professional investors have underperformed after fees and they go through all these bits and, and they have all these arguments about why professional investors are no good. Mm-hmm. But we know professional investors are no, um, so, but the, the thing is, we, when we look at average retail investors, we see a much bigger underperformance. And so, and for me, I, I keep having to come back to saying, well, the market's made up of, um, you know, we, it's the same as the, the good at sex and above average at sex argument is we know there's some people outperforming. We know there's some people underperforming. Yep. And there's, there's range between. What tends to happen is, um, retail investors tend to underperform. Mm-hmm. Uh, institutional or professional investors outperform. Yep. And then they take fees. And so depending upon who you're with, um, those fees can actually send you back out the other side. Drag you back to the index, so, so to speak. Yep. Yeah. So if you, if you're out there paying, uh, two two percent two and twenty they call it yep. in, in the hedge fund land two percent of your two uh, percent of what you've got and twenty percent of any performance and there's potentially an advisor or two or three middlemen also sitting between you then your yep. your guys might be doing fantastically well they might be outperforming the market by four or five percent and you're underperforming because net of fees net of fees they're yep. they're taking it all off you yep sure so um, yeah so the average but coming back to the average investor. They generally underperform by about two percent per annum. Most of the studies show, and most of the reason for that, there's a few a few different reasons, but most of the reason is bad timing that mm. they they sell low and they buy high. Okay, and it's a natural sort of tendency that everyone has, and it's something that you really need to to keep in mind is that uh, as an investor, people tend to buy and sell based based on their perception of risk. So, and people have it almost completely wrong. So the market goes up 100%, mm-hmm. and people think, "Fantastic! How good is this market? Um, it's up 100%. I need to buy more of this thing." Yeah, sure. As opposed to saying, looking at the valuation side, because at, at times the value that you know the earnings haven't changed and just the valuations have doubled. Yep. And so all of a sudden you're looking and saying, "Well, we've gone from being say average price to hor- horrendously expensive." And so then, if therefore you know that's the time to be selling, not the time to be in there piling in more. Yep, sure. And and vice versa on the downside. And so, what what people tend to do is, if 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 um, earnings have been, if sorry, if share markets have been quite steady and and, and rising, you see floods of money coming in, mm-hmm. and then when you have some sudden sharp downturns, all of a sudden everyone wants to sit on their hands, and and even people beforehand. So a lot of it's 
about writing down what you're going to do mm. and saying, I'm expecting this to happen. So, right now, a lot of people are expecting share markets to fall back and, and us included. Yep. And it's about saying, okay, well, I'm expecting a fall in share markets and I'm expecting these factors to, to happen. And so, if that happens, then I should go out and buy. Mm. Um, but what will invariably happen is when the share markets do fall, there'll be headlines everywhere saying panic stations, you know, earnings have fallen, um, you know, trade war worsens, uh, US going into recession. There'll be all this stuff and, and people just, they freeze. Yeah. And they sure. basically go, oh, I knew it was coming. Uh, so I've done really well, but now I'm just going to wait until, you know, yep. wait until Armageddon happens because that's, you know, everyone's now talking about Armageddon. Yep. And, and don't, and don't jump onto that, that, that other tendency. So. And that, that's normally when you're saying that, uh, I, I indicate that when the, uh, sea of worried broker photos appear on the front page of the AFR, that's normally, <laughs> to me, that's when you can <laughs> the, ring the bell. Yeah. <laughs> and, and there was a, uh, I need to get it. I need to get more references to this because I keep talking about it, but, but there was a, there is a, um, a, a very well performing, a very before a fund manager who sort of outperformed the market over years and years, and and in, in a discussion he was sort of asked about, um, you know, I think he had sort of three four percent outperformance, and he was asked about how his you know his customers must be his investors must be really happy, and he said, oh, he thinks his investors on a on a time weight on a on a money weighted average mm. had actually lost had actually underperformed the market, yep, because they kept on trying to pick out whether. They, they would try and tr- not only trend follow the market, but also trend follow him. Him, yeah. So right. if he'd, he'd struck, he'd, the market had strung together a few good quarters and he would have strung together a few good quarters. Big rush in. There was this huge rush in. <laughs> and then the market had a few bad quarters and or he had a few bad quarters. Yep. And th- there was this huge rush out. Yeah, And right. so uh, he'd done the numbers to actually work out that on average, you know, people on a, on a money-weighted basis, um, that actually underperformed by trying to not only time the market, but also time their, their fund manager's outperformance. Wow. Yeah. So, so overriding the whole thing with their own biases, essentially. Exactly. Mm, okay. Very good. Um, so uh, another one is, uh, so reducing, so is just, reducing the opportunity set. Yeah. So I've just got chart. the, um, yeah, this is just the, on different markets, the, what, how far, how, how big that underperformance has been for, for retail investors. It's an estimate by, um, uh, I think it's Morningstar. Okay. I'll put it up on there on there. But yeah, so basically in aggregate, they've got it as two, two and a half percent down, but, but varies between some assets where in US equities it was only, it's only just about, it's only just under 2%, whereas in, um, some other ones it's sort of as much as three. Yeah, yeah right. Okay. Yeah. Sure thing. Um, so we'll jump across into, uh, the order of the day. So diversification and we'll cover off on, uh, what we think the typical Australian portfolio looks like. Yeah. Mum and dad investor. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> I guess I wanted to highlight this one because because I've we've seen a number of SMSFs um, come through that have these these characteristics where they go uh, they've got their own residential prop home they've got five five assets own their own residential home they have an investment property somewhere uh, they've got a bunch of bank shares uh, they've got some hybrids and they've got uh, a corporate bond ETF to mm. sort of sit there and say okay I've got this nice diversified portfolio it does look very diversified on the surface doesn't yeah, it yeah well, you know <laughs> I, everything will be fine. And so, but when when you dig in a little bit, you go, you've actually just got five different exposures to the Australian housing market. Mm. So Aussie banks um, have basically got uh, one of the highest exposures in the in the world, but and by a long shot, um, as, as if you look at their uh, residential property lending as a proportion of the total loans that they make. Sure. Yep. So if you're buying an Australian bank, um, you're buying a leverage play on the Australian housing market. Mm. So there's a there's strong there's correlation. A, a very strong correlation between that. So, so your residential home, your investment property, and your bank are all you're playing the same game. Yep. Okay. Uh, and the the next one is they go, well, I've got some hybrids, and you're like, well, hybrids. 
how I describe them as not an institutional asset. So, mm. so when banks make hybrids, they're there to sell to retail investors. So, and, and for those at home, hybrids are um, they're generally ASX listed. They mm. have the um, the surface qualities of uh, a fixed income style product because mm. they generally pay quite an elevated rate, rate of interest. So, yep. you know, go back you know three or four years ago, you was, all the big banks were rolling things out at. Six and seven and eight percent, um, and, you know. And sometimes they've got franking. Yeah, that's right. In, a bit of franking thrown in. As well. Yeah, they're so. very enticing if you uh, you didn't look below the surface. But yeah, yeah go on. And so it's always you always have to be worried when you're saying here is an asset that um, professional investors look at and go, eh, no thanks, I won't have any of that. <laughs> but retail investors will take it. Yeah, sure. And you say, well, d- there has to be something. You know what? What? What do retail investors know that all the professional investors don't know? Yeah. And what the retail investors know is, well, we like the franking credits, and yep. we like, and we like a nice high, yield. Like a, a yeah. nice high locking yield. Yep. Whereas the institutional guys are looking at this and saying, uh, for the risk you're taking, um, you're basically getting all the upside of debt, which mm-hmm. is none, none, <laughs> and all the downside of equity. Yeah, sure. Or you know, most of the downside of equity. Sorry, yep. you're not. You, you're one step above the equity rung, and so. Uh, and, so, and so by that we mean um, the that if the if we have a big share market fallout or the banks themselves got, come into serious trouble, yep. the ability for uh, well the, the need for them to repay hybrid holders is quite well, substantially lower than a lot of their other debt that they issue to, um, mm. to institutions, for example. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, yeah, but part of it as well is like when you have debt, um, you usually want having debt in your portfolio because you want some safety and you want that regular income stream. Sure. And so if you've got something where the income stream can be stopped if things start going badly. Mm. The, the, things go badly. The share market crashes. The, your hybrids, the, 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 the share values plummet. Next thing, they're not paying um, yeah. interest payments on it. You might end up getting all the money back in the end. Yep. And for, for a lot of these, you probably will. Mm. But when you need it most, they've just you, you had it there because you wanted it for, for security. Yep. And then you didn't get the security in, in when, when things uh, Absolutely. went terribly. Where, whereas in other sort of government bonds and, and other bonds like that is where you do find you do get those benefits. It's where there is a flight to safety. <laughs> Absolutely. To a downgrade. Yep, yeah. Sure. And then the other thing is, um, you know, most of the hybrids are uh, banks, are, are banks <laughs> by, by issue size. Yep. So, um, yeah, so if you just bought a, a portfolio of hybrids, you're, you've got more exposure to banks, which is, again, more exposure to the Australian housing market. Okay, sure. So if we move away from hybrids, so hybrids being purely in the, you know, potentially retail domain, then we've yep. got the next level up's typically sort of your corporate level debt. Bond, so, ETF, yeah. yeah. So, so, I mean, I'm, I'm picking a little bit on this one, but the, the, the Russell Investments Australia Select Corporate Bond ETF, um, last I looked was the largest corporate bond ETF listed on the Australian market. Okay. Uh, now, I'm not saying, uh, you know, corporate bonds do provide some diversification uh, depending upon what type of business cycle it is and, and, you know, a whole bunch of other caveats to that. Yep. But they, they are certainly more diversified than, than buying shares. Um, but I just wanted to highlight here is one of the largest ones listed on the Australian market and the Australian corporate bond market is not deep. Mm. So generally, uh, Australians, Australian companies will, will go overseas to, to, to raise money sure. and, okay. um, and sort of hedge it back or do whatever it takes to sort of get it back to the, the right currency. So if you look at the Australian corporate bond ETF, um, I've got the top, top 10 holdings, I think, there, and um, they're, they're, all, they're basically banks and Telstra. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, you know, eight out of the 10 are, are banks and, and you get some Telstra holdings as well just to, to yep. round you out. Yep, sure. So, uh, yes, it's a diversified corporate bond ETF. But it's a diversified, but it's one more one more exposure to the banks, which we spoke more on more exposure to, to Aussie, housing, housing. Aussie housing. So, yep. you know, that, I guess for me, 
you got to keep coming back and digging through all these and saying what you think might be a, a nicely diversified portfolio, mm. if there is a common thread running through it all, when that when something goes wrong in that, yep. every single one of those um, dominoes starts to fall over. Okay, sure. Um, we've got a, a t- we've touched on here, you've got a chart on uh, US stock bond correlations. Would, yeah. Would this one? So I've got just a few correlation ones. So, so the idea behind this diversification is you want stuff that's going to move in different directions. So when markets are going, uh, you know, when you, when markets are going down, you want some assets that'll go up. When, yep. when equity markets are going down, you want some assets going up. Or, or and then when equity markets are going well, those those same assets might not do very well at all. Yeah, sure. And so they they're the types of assets you get that will give you some diversification. Um, it, they'll always hurt when you've got them. In well, they'll always feel like you're doing the wrong thing because mm-hmm. you'll you'll be sitting there with uh, these bonds in your portfolio and equity markets are going up twenty thirty percent. You're like, oh, why didn't I just have more equities? And it's like, well, because when the that's your war chest. Fan. Yep. Yeah, that's right. Those, if you've got the government, the high quality bonds or, or government bonds, um, actually preferably both, um, then when problems happen, they're the ones that hold up and give you, and actually usually pop up in price to give you a chance then to go and buy, take that, sell them, go buy, um, go buy equities with it. Okay. Now yep. they're not always correlated, and they, the correlations do change over time. Mm. But uh, and I've just sort of got a hundred year odd chart up there. Just to sort of show that um, you can go through different periods where they, you know, you get some um, correlations heading in the same direction and, and other directions. But uh, the, the, the key thing is you need to work out where you are in the cycle and, and whether they are going to be useful at that point, um, and 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 making sure you are properly diversified. Okay, sure. And so I've got another chart up there just showing another a bunch of different assets and sort of some greens and reds as to showing which. Which ones are diversified with others? So um, yeah, if you're if you're buying uh, corporate bonds, they're less uh, they're more correlated with the stock market than, mm-hmm. than government bonds because when stock markets do have big sell-offs, there's often um, problems. It is often related to problems in in uh, with companies going broke. Yep. And so um, so you can see some some correlation between those. And so you sort of you want to try and find things that are as as uncorrelated as possible. Of course, yeah. Yep. So with with a proviso that both assets are actually going up. So um, over over the medium There's term, there's still upside in everything that yeah, you're investing. Yeah, you can, you can find some great correlations in you know here's an asset that always goes up and here's an asset that always goes down. You know, is is, is a great correlation, but it's not a very good investment strategy. Yeah, gotcha. so you, you know, both investments do actually need to, to add up in the in the, but you just want them to be out of cycle, mm. and that's where some some international helps as well. Mm. It, you know. They they say there's a lot of things about you know it's just you just need to spend some time and you can take on more risk and if things go down you just hold on and eventually they'll recover and that may be true yep but we're um we're in stock markets at the moment that are all just hitting the same highs they they hit ten years ago it's amazing and so um it can take a long time mm. yep okay. and so you want to try and be in assets where you don't have to be um you know not living the lifestyle you want to live for for a ten year period while you wait for your assets to recover from the last fall if you, if you Absolutely, and 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 in particularly important, um, you know, in that later stage of, of uh, superannuation, being a retirement vehicle to um, ensure that you've got something you can eat while you're waiting for, you know, the, the relevant asset classes to recover and uh, and go from there. Yeah. That leads us into our final notes. So, um, sort of, I guess. I just sort of stuck up there that SMSFs can be a great solution um, if you do want that full control. They're basically the, the go-to if you want to have all the levers in front of you mm-hmm. and you want to, you know, you, you basically want to be responsible for everything that you do. Um, 
a couple other sort of, I guess, um, pros for SMSFs is, you know, the ability, as we mentioned before, to combine assets with a spouse and family, although uh, only uh, less than five, not less than seven, uh, until probably another government or two away. Um, much broader uh, investment palette available. We spoke before about uh, real property and, and uh, there is some limited borrowing available at a cost um, with that extra level of control. Um, you do potentially get some more flexibility in retirement is always a common selling point for SMSFs because you've got the ability to, um, to swap in and out essentially if it, if it works for you between the accumulation and the pension side of super. So there's a, there's a lot of accounting uh, that can go on behind the scenes that can you know yield you a, a good um, outcome as opposed to when you're in a master trust, you've actually got to fire up a pension and move money into it and draw pensions from it. Um, when you're in an SMSF, it, it can be a, bit, a little bit more fluid as long as at the end of the day you're staying within the, the legislation. Um, and and, and a co- often trotted out one as well, of course, is that it can be cheaper. So master trusts are generally... Um, Generally, you know, priced at a certain rate, normally under an assets, um, you know, for, for the admin and the, and the investment sort of side of things. Uh, however, you know, with higher balances, particularly on the administration side, mm. you've got fixed costs, accounting costs and, 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 um, you know, compliance costs that, uh, with a larger balance can make the, uh, the administration side in particular, uh, cheaper. Mm. But of course, um, it, also. Yeah. Can, so also, can also be a lot more expensive. That's right. Well, that's right. Yeah. And this is, this is the whole point. You need to ensure mm. that you've got the time to spend on the management of the fund for your own sake. You're in charge of the money and it's on you if you make a mistake. Mm. Um, the, the complex um, tax affairs, so people that have got, you know, trusts and all sorts of pieces, particularly rolling into retirement, um, SMSFs can be a um, quite a good uh, complement to to those broader pieces. Um, and But once again, with the proviso that you've got a, a good quality accountant or advisor or someone uh, helping you to get the most out of those structures, so you know, just they're not all working in isolation because then I, I just never seen never seen that work well. Um, and as always, um, with complete control uh, comes complete responsibility. Uh, <laughs> and I, I don't know how much more we can round that one home. But um, <laughs> and and and, I, and just finally, I guess, and um, perhaps we're, you know, we're we've seen ourselves roll into it. Yeah, yeah, actually, just one other thing I just want to say on the on the trust is it. Uh, there are a lot more options now as well um, than what there were a few years ago in terms of your um, in terms of giving people flexibility. Mm. So with some separately managed accounts and things like that, yep. you, you can often get um, you know, certainly not the full flexibility you get with an SMSF, but you can get part of the way there. And so if you are thinking about um, you know, do I need my SMSF and do I should I just switch it into a, just a normal super fund or whatever? Yep. Um, when you lose that. Uh, if, if that's something you've been considering, then then do it now. Do it. Don't wait for don't. Don't wait until the end of June. Don't wait until the end of June because <laughs> you, you'll just have another year's worth of tax to pay and another year's worth of things to fill out. And, yep. and don't even wait to the end of May next year because you know it, these things take a while to wind up and get everything sorted. Hundred percent. So yep. um, yeah, do it now if you're uh, if you're thinking about uh, shutting down. So you've only got to pay this year's fees, not next year's as well. well. That's right, absolutely. And then yeah, just sort of finally, I guess, um, and, and where we've seen ourselves fit nicely into um, the SMSF sort of piece for those that are, are comfortable. Um, or one of the reasons that they have it is because they like to. You know, take advantage of areas that they might not be able to through a an industry super fund. Yeah, sorry, I should just say as well. Oh, if yeah. you're going to start one, start one now as well. So yeah, you well, get, that's true. You get, a, you get a full year's <laughs> worth of worth of value. You don't you don't start it in. Uh, yeah, you know, start the 25th of June. Next yeah, year, right. and, and you get uh, a full year's worth of accounting. Yeah, I say the issues. Your accountant uh, would love you for that. <laughs> but, yeah, with five days of actual. Yeah, that's true. That, and that's right. And and, and yeah. So, so and just getting back to that, um, the whole point of you know with the SMSF and the enhanced control and and choice over you know your investment palette is um, for for us. You know, there, there's always a core need. 
um, to have, you know, large cap stocks, cash, bonds, et cetera, in there. Um, and, and what, you know, potentially, and we've seen this with clients of our own, that, you know, they, they, they like to do, uh, focus on one particular area that, that's relevant to them. And you mentioned before, say, um, working in the medical industry and having, uh, you know, a penchant for bio, biotech stocks. Yeah. Focus on that. Use use uh, a, an investment manager, be it us or whoever, to, to look after the boring part of the portfolio, so that you can actually spend the time that it deserves on you know the, the spicier areas of investment that do need high levels of management. And mistakes can be certainly a lot more costly. Um, so um, on that note, oh, we've also got a question. Yeah, Sorry, from- so we we are shooting this live. Um, so, okay, so we've got a question here regarding bail-in laws. Uh, so um, the, the, well, the overarching question is that do you feel that Australian self-managed super fund money in bank accounts is still safe given the uh, potential for, for bail-in laws? Have you got two cents to rub together on, on that one there, Damo? Yeah, absolutely. So this is, um, you, you often see there's, there's a few people who um, are quite concerned about the whole bail-in laws. And look, it is, it is, Genuinely, according to the letter of the law, a, a threat for people that, mm. that, you know, that things could happen and, and your money could be bailed into to, to the banks. Um, my, my personal view is that that's uh, with what, what do we see there? One in 20 accounts in, in one in 20 Australians in, in, in SMSF. Uh, in SMSF. Yep. Um, if a political party would like to give up one in 20 of its votes, mm. um, then one in 20 votes from all in Australians, sorry. So 5% of which is probably more like 10 or 15% of company's own uh, a political party's own votes for for a generation or two yep. then um they might consider doing the bail-ins we, we fully expect that um that for major banks uh and they've already been anointed too too big to fail yep is that you won't see um the bail-in laws affecting you until or they can't print money anymore until they can't, <laughs> can't print money there's something broken at the printer at, at, at martin price or um, and, and keep in mind, you've also had to be through a whole range of other people within banks as well. Like there's there's wholesale depositors, there's equity holders, there's there's like a raft of people who will have been wiped out mm. before you finally get down to the depositors. Depositors are basically the the voting population the, in, not in totality, voting, <laughs> but but also pretty much the last set of people. Um, you know, ex maybe some employee entitlements and things like that. But you you're one of the last sets of people who is going to lose their money on, on in a, in a banking run. Mm. Um, and so. Uh, for me, it's not something that um, I guess. I guess what I'm saying is, if, if we get to that stage, there's going to be much larger problems with society than um, you know. Yeah, SMSFs <laughs> exactly, <laughs> and SMSFs. taking hair t- haircuts. Okay, no, well, thanks for that. Um, and that leads us into uh, beautifully into our topic for next week, uh, being uh, rates to zero and beyond. So uh, we will be exploring, and uh, maybe we'll pop that one up uh, if we can. Get our uh, chief strategist uh, David Llewellyn Smith along to uh, to have a chat about that, and maybe get his uh, his ideas on uh, on the prospects of things like bank bail-ins as well. So same bat time, same bat channel. Thursday, the twenty fifth of July, twelve thirty, uh, and head over to our Nucleus Wealth live webinar page available through www.nucleuswealth.com to to view that live and also have your questions answered. And on that note. Well, that's it for now, and thanks for watching. If you like what you heard today and you'd like to hear more, head over to nucleuswealth.com forward slash subscribe, give us your email address, and in return, we'll send you a weekly email with new webinar topics, links for our podcasts, and other news from Nucleus Wealth. I certainly hope you've got something out of today, as I have, and we'll look forward to catching you with the next one. Cheers. Cheers.